can turn over in your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah 32. We've been looking at a little uh, series on uh, prayer, uh, four, four messages altogether, and uh, this is the third one, and next week we'll conclude that, and then we'll be heading into the book of Titus for our fall time together. But today I want to speak to you about the man who bought property in a war zone, <laughs> and the prayer and the communication he had with God concerning this decision. Um, I suppose if a real estate agent called you and said, hey, I have a uh, $10 million property available to you, and it's kind of a resort, it has a hotel and cottages and everything, it's just beautiful, and uh, it's worth about... $10 $10 million, the property is several acres, and I'm going to let you have it for 10000 Sounds like a pretty good deal. By the way, it's over in the foothills of Afghanistan, <laughs> in the middle of a war zone. Um, you might rethink actually purchasing that property, because it's probably not the best investment that you would be able to make to buy a piece of property that's already controlled um, by the enemy of our own country, and uh, that would just be a, a silly decision to make. Yet that's exactly what God asked Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, to do. Um, to put things in perspective just a little bit here, you have to remember that Jerusalem was under siege. Uh, by the Chaldeans, they were under attack. They were literally up against the wall of the city, and they had their um, their their ramps ready to go. They were ready to invade and overthrow. And Jeremiah basically was in prison during this time. And the reason he was in prison was simply because he had been preaching a message that God told him to preach. And the message was basically the the nation was going to fall to the enemy. And that the king would be taken captive. And that God wanted them to surrender. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? I mean, that would be like President Bush standing up on that pile of rubble as he did after 9-11. And say, pretty soon the men that tore down these buildings will hear from us. And then the next day, someone within the government says, you know what? Has a speech and says, you know, we're just going to basically give up. We're going to just uh, surrender to the enemy because they're going to take over and uh, we're going to be ruled by the Taliban from now on, the, the, uh, all those folks, and Al-Qaeda. And, and, and so let's just give up. I mean, that person would probably be brought up on charges if they were part of the government. Well, that's exactly what Jeremiah was doing. That's exactly what the situation was. And the king had a real uh, problem with him. And while he was in prison, uh, with the sound of the enemy army coming up against the the city walls, God told him to purchase a piece of property in Anathoth, which is already under the enemy control. And we don't know what his relatives' motives were in selling him this, other than, hey, you know what, Jeremiah, you're, you're the oldest. You have the right to buy it. Why don't you buy it from me so I don't have to deal with this enemy-held property any longer? I want to unload it. I want some cash. I'm going to cash out. And so God told him to actually purchase this land and to go through the proper legal proceedings. We're going to read about that. And as a prophetic drama, really, to emphasize that God would keep his gracious promise of restoring the land to Israel. So look at Jeremiah Chapter 32, and this is where the the text in which it it happens in, and we're just going to read uh, part of this this morning. But Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the... The word word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, was 
which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, has, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. He shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you, f- you fight against the Chaldeans, you, will not, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anath, Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field, which is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. Verse 9. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in earthenware vessel, that they may last For a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, is it you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm? Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers of their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the, fruits, the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day you bought your people brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror verse 22 and you gave them this land when you swore to the fathers to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey and they entered and took possession of it but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege of mounds has come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. 
The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come out and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses of those whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. The city has aroused my anger and wrath, and from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places to Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, that's a story that is very interesting for various reasons. The first thing we see here is that God told Jeremiah to preach against these, uh, against Jerusalem, telling the people that the enemy was going to just overrun them. And that just didn't uh, go well with the king. And so the king basically threw him in prison. And you look at the message that Jeremiah was told to preach, it was a difficult message. It was something that was hard. It was, it was hard for him to preach, I'm sure, and it was hard for the people to hear and understand. What is he talking about? You know, where's the victory chant? You know, where's, where's, you know, we're down here, but we're not overthrown yet. We're just going to throw in the towel, Jeremiah? And yet he did exactly what God instructed him to do. See, the principle here is very simple. Um, God never calls his prophets or pastors or teachers or whatever to simply give upbeat messages each Sunday so that everybody can go away feeling warm and cozy. That's not the purpose of coming to church. You don't come to church because you had a tough week and you're looking for a shot in the arm to get you through the next week. If that's your purpose, it's misguided. You come to church, hopefully, to praise and worship the Lord and Savior, or God, our Creator. You come to, to church to hopefully communicate with God in corporate prayer with other believers. You come to church, hopefully, to give of your tithes and offerings into the house of God to further the ministry and work of the Lord through the missionaries we support, through the local ministry here. You come to church on a weekly basis, hopefully, to serve the Lord God who so graciously saved you. You come to be edified and built up and taught in his word. Now, if you go away feeling well, that's great. But sometimes you may not. And frankly, neither do I. Sometimes it's hard to come into this place and preach a message that is going to be difficult to hear. And that's why we preach through the Bible. See, I don't have the luxury of picking and choosing each week what I want to teach. Now, we're doing a little series on prayer, so these four messages here are kind of topical. So I have that luxury there. But usually we're in a book. And when we're in a book, I can't just come to a hard verse and say, ah, you know what, that speaks of something that's going to be offensive. I think we're just going to kind of go over that and we'll move on. We can't do that if we're committed to the authority, the inerrancy, and the power of the Word of God. And so Jeremiah was told to preach against Jerusalem. And unfortunately, today in our modern evangelical church, it seems like they're more interested in, in uh, following the marketing antics of market, you know, uh, marketplace antics that, that show them how they can have more people and, and a better ministry, those kind of things. And so they're always looking how to please the customer. You hear some churches today that say, you know, we're a church for the unchurched. And I just scratch my head at that and go, what in the world is that? How can you have a church that's made up of believers 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and his committed followers, that's what the church is by definition. How can you have a church made up of unbelievers? You can't. You can't have a church for the unchurched. It doesn't make any sense, biblically. And yet, that's what a lot of ministries are doing today. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when, when you come to marriage, and you come to two people of the same sex wanting to be married. Well, that's not what marriage is. So what they have to do? They have to redefine marriage. And that's what the modern church has done to the word church. They've redefined the church. It's no longer just a gathering of believers on, a, on the first day of the week to, to worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's a gathering of people for social reasons and some spiritual reasons, but it's mostly social to connect and to network and to get together and to, to get to know people. And so you see the emphasis of some of some ministries is, is it's all drama, it's all music, it's plays, it's this and that. All those things may be good things. But then they kind of slip in the teaching of the Bible, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Poor pastor has 10 or 15 minutes to share something at the end or in the middle with all the light shows and fog and everything else going on. And you just have a tendency to get lost. The Word of God gets lost. We never want that to happen. Even though sometimes it's hard to hear It's hard to hear the truth sometimes. It's difficult. And so we see here the first kind of thing. It's the the overall lesson here is by faith we must pray for God graciously to fulfill his promises, no matter how bleak the situation. We really have to intercede and ask God to fulfill his promises, no matter what's going on on the horizon. And that's what Jeremiah did. He held God to his promises. He had to be obedient to this difficult command. And that's the first lesson here. To pray by faith for God to fulfill his promises, we must be obedient to God's difficult commands. We can't just assume that we can do whatever we want and then we go to our God by grace and pray and expect him to answer our prayers. If you can't pray by faith, For God to fulfill his promises by being obedient to God's commands, the prayers are not going to be answered, beloved. It'd be like a a single person praying, you know, Lord, just send me me a godly mate. Send me a godly mate, somebody that, that really loves the Lord. Well, you know what? You can't pray by faith for a godly mate unless you're willing to be growing in godliness yourself. If you're married, you can't pray by faith for God to heal and bless and restore your marriage unless you're living in obedience to His Word. For us husbands, we need to love our wives sacrificially. For the wives, you need to be willing to submit to your, your, your husband's spiritual leadership in the home. Those are difficult things. Those are hard words to hear, but that's what is required. So many times we don't want to do those things, but we ask, God, oh, bless my relationship with my wife. And then we go on and do whatever we want to do. Well, that's not going to fly. God's not going to bless that. You can't pray by faith that God would somehow supernaturally bless your children as they grow up if you're not modeling a godly life and a godly marriage before them each day and you're not consistently seeking to train them in the ways of the Lord. Andrew read a wonderful passage this morning out of Deuteronomy. That's the whole principle there. The things that we know to be true in the Word of God, we need to pass those on to our children. And you know what? I'm encouraged to be in a church where I have the little young people coming up occasionally and they'll be reciting verses. They'll be telling Bible stories. They'll be telling things that they learned downstairs or in their Christian school or whatever. That's so encouraging because you don't get that in today's world. The parents are doing the right thing so they can pray by faith, God bless my children because they're doing the hard things. They're being willing to take that difficult stand. Or maybe we're praying for our missionaries 
or even the work of this local church here in this community. You know what? That's great. I mean, we, we covet your prayers. We want you to pray. But you know what? If you're not obeying God by, by giving both your time, your, your resources, your money to the work of the Lord, then that's not a prayer of faith. I mean, we want God to build his church, don't we? Don't we? Amen? That'd be a good place for an amen. Hello? Is anybody awake out there? Holy mackerel. Let's go. I'll turn down the thermostat a little more. Get a little chilly in here so you don't fall asleep. But see, we've, we've thrown that out the door and we've said, well, let's just have a place where, you know, we can get together and occasionally, you know, eat some food together and fellowship. See, unless we're willing to live out these difficult commands that God gives us, beloved, our prayers really fall on deaf ears. It says there, God told Jeremiah to preach against Jerusalem in your outline there. That was a difficult thing for him to do. God also told Jeremiah to buy a field that's under enemy control. That makes no logical sense whatsoever. And to pray by faith, Jeremiah had to be obedient to, first of all, bring that message and then bear the consequences of his message. You know, some of you young people, you know, when you stand up for Christ, what's going to happen? You're going to be made fun of. Your, your, your friends are not going to, they're going to mock you. That's just the way it is. Get used to it. I mean, don't try to appease them. We must be obedient to God's difficult commands before, before he will bless us and answer our prayers. Now, the world, unfortunately, looks at things from a totally different perspective. Um, When you go out into the beautiful creation that God has put before us. Hopefully, as a believer, you can sit back and you can look at what God has created. And you can say, wow, this is incredible. This is just amazing. You go up to Yosemite. I know there's fires going on up there right now. But you go up there and you look and you just see, wow, this is at the hand of God. And it's just a a really incredible thing. But you know what? The world doesn't look at that. They go up there and say, oh, look at at, this. took billions and billions of years for everything to erode. And over billions and billions of years, finally, we're the result of all this. They don't have any answer when you up in Yosemite and you see a, a bald eagle or a hawk or something soaring. And you see them go down and snatch that rodent that they eat. See, they they have a problem when it it comes to evolution with that because it seems that the birds were before the little rodents, so the birds wouldn't have survived because they wouldn't have had any meat. (laughs) See, in their timeline, that's how it worked out. Or you take another example of the great horned owl, an owl that is just a magnificent part of God's creation. My little granddaughter Gabby loves owls for some reason. I don't know why, but she loves owls. And the great horned owl is a huge bird. But you know what? Sometimes if you're, if you're close to a bird when they take off, you know, you hear their wings flapping. If you've ever been to the beach and you hear a bunch of... With the great horned owl, you don't hear nothing. It's total stealth. They can fly right by you flapping. You don't even hear it. And the reason is, is because on the, on the forward front of their wings, God has put these super soft, downy feathers to cushion the sound. So they can swoop down on their prey and totally undetected snag it. Their eyes are said to be a hundred times more sensitive to light than human eyes. Which allows them to be out at night under just starlight. You don't even have to have a moon out, just starlight. And they can see things that we could never see. Another thing that's interesting with the, the great horned owl is that The owl's left ear is about an inch lower than the right ear. It's made that way by God. You say, well, why is that? Because it's able by its brain to understand that those sounds are coming at them at a certain rate and and it reaches the one ear a little quicker than the other ear. 
And just by the brain does the math somehow, and it enables that owl to be able to zero in exactly where that sound is coming from. They also have those big eyes, great big eyes. They're not just eyes. They're, they're really um, receivers. They serve as like a big dish antenna, you might say. And they, they, they're there to collect sound. You say, wait a minute, they, they, they hear with their eyes? Yeah, they do. They have these transient sound tunnels that go from their eyes to their ears. And they just, their eyes are made in such a way that it just like picks up the sound. And when that bird swallows its prey, by the way, they swallow their prey whole usually. Their stomach provides these incredible, powerful acids that just mutilate the flesh and just dissolve it. But it doesn't dissolve the fur, the teeth, or the bones. And you say, well, what's he do with that? Basically, what happens with the... the, the, uh, the teeth and the bones, is that it, it has this function, this part of the stomach that is able to have this special muscle that takes all that leftover stuff and it compacts it tightly into this little pellet. And then it has a certain gland in the owl's throat that coats the pellet with mucus and enables the owl just to be able to spit it back out. Just amazing. That's the work of God. Now, you can look at that and go, well, that just happened by chance. You know, I don't think the owl would have survived, you know, one swallow of bones and stuff. If this all would have happened by chance, he would have tore his esophagus apart. It wouldn't have happened. God created him that way. And we can look at multiple examples of God's design. But see, the world doesn't look at it that way. They, 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 the Bible says that they, they, they kind of put the truth aside. And even though God has given them the witness of his creation and the witness of our conscience, why do you think it's wrong for somebody to go out and kill another person? I mean, why do you think that's wrong? Because God has put that in our hearts. He's put that in our conscience. Why do you think it's wrong to steal someone else's property? Well, yeah, the law says, but where did the law come from? It's our conscience. We know that's wrong. Something tells us it's wrong. And so it's, it's, it's very important here that we understand that, that God is, is this incredible being, but he demands us to follow his commands, to follow his commands. Second point there is to pray by faith for God to fulfill his promises. We must appeal to God's character. I just realized what I was doing was I was missing every other page in my notes. <laughs> so I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? And I usually print them on one side, but for some reason it printed on two sides. So I'm going through my messages. I'm like, man, I'm missing big gaps here. What's happening? But the first point under that was God is all-powerful. That's what he says in, in verse 17. Look at what he says, verse chapter 32. Our Lord God, we sang this this morning, right? Is it you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm? Nothing is too difficult or nothing is too hard for you. We sang that chorus this morning, you know. Side note, you know, some people... You know, get all over that. You know, you should sing just hymns, only hymns, no, no choruses. Well, you know what? If you have a problem with singing back the word of God to the man, the, the God who gave it to us, I don't know what to tell you. Very important. God is all powerful. He points that out there. Secondly, God is gracious. Look at verse 18. He says, you showed steadfast love to thousands but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. That word, loving kindness, in the original language comes from the word uh, stork. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's kind of an interesting word. Um, it has the, the picture of, if you know anything about, uh, about storks, they... 
they do extraordinarily in the area of caring for their young. I mean, there's nothing quite like an a adult stork caring for its little baby stork. And Israel understood that, and they, they, they understood this language. They said, wow, this is, this is what God does for us. God protects us in spite of ourselves sometimes. We need to be reminded of that, that we serve a, God, a gracious God. He's all-powerful, but he's also gracious. It would be one thing if God was all-powerful, but he wasn't gracious. That would not be a very good God. Praise God for his, his grace. Praise God for his ability to communicate that grace through us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, God is settled in his wrath against all sin. Sometimes we forget this point. God is settled in his wrath against all sin. It's very important that we, we come to understand the idea that, that God is, a, is his, his wrath is real. I mean, yeah, we serve a loving God, but God also has a side of him that is, is just unbridled wrath against all sin. That's why we need a Savior. To protect us from God's wrath, from God's anger, from God's judgment. And it's it's interesting in this this text in Jeremiah 32. He goes right from God being all-powerful to God being gracious. And then almost without even skipping a beat, you know what? Don't forget, even though God is gracious, he still has wrath against all sin. Says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. You reward each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. I mean, we live in a day today, beloved, that is, is so tolerant of sin on every, every side. See, there's a direct connection here. If you look at verse 23, there's a direct connection between Israel's sin, between Israel's sin and their, the experience that they're having, the calamity that they're having. It says, and they entered and took possession of it, but they did not what? Obey your voice or walk in your law. Matter of fact, they didn't do anything. They didn't do squat of all that you have commanded them to do. Therefore, as a result of their disobedience, you have made all this disaster to come upon them. Sometimes we think because we live under grace that somehow we are are sequestered from God's discipline. God does not judge the believer. But he disciplines us. If we're willfully sinning before our God, he's not just going to close his eyes and say, oh yeah, Jesus paid for all your sins. That's okay. Go do whatever you want. That's not the God we serve. He says, no, I love you as a, as a father loves his child. I'm going I'm to discipline you. I'm going to make it hard on you. Because you're not doing what I've asked you to do. Or you're willingly doing what I told you not to do. Look at verse 30 and 35. 30 to 35, he kind of affirms, God affirms Jeremiah's words by stating the reason for his anger. And the reason was there, Israel's repeated sin. They just kept on doing it over and over again. You know, in the church we call that a besetting sin. (laughs) Well, you know, the brother, he has a besetting sin. We just have to be understanding It says, for the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in the sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger. See, there is a righteous anger. We, we talked a little bit about this Wednesday night in our study. And someone said, well, well what's the, you know, where's the line? How do you know when your anger is righteous and when it becomes unrighteous? Do you get angry? 
I do. I get angry at a lot of different things. Sit down and watch the news, man, I really get angry. And the Giants playing a game and they're just, you know, all thumbs. I get really angry. It's like, come on, guys. You hear about something going on in the, in the community or you hear about something going on in the government it just gets you angry or you hear about the plight of, of Christians in some countries where they're being slaughtered because of their faith. You get angry. Sometimes don't communicate properly with your wife. You get angry. She gets angry. And we're both angry. It's a big, big anger fest, you know. Well, God gets angry, but it's righteous anger. The difference, really, between the kind of anger that we're talking about here and, and righteous anger is, is whenever you're angry and it causes you to do something, whatever it may be, it could be think of thought, it could be actually act out, it could be saying something. Whenever it causes you to do something that's not in accord with God's word or God's plan or God's purpose for you or it brings dishonor to Christ, that's the wrong kind of anger. But if you can be angry about something and handle it in a way that's honoring to Christ, that's okay. We're not called to be little mamby-pamby Christians that lay down and let everybody walk all over us. Jesus wasn't that way. I mean, Jesus was a man who actually went into the temple one day and started throwing over tables, turning over tables and kicking those people out who were basically turning his father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. He was angry, but it was righteous anger. He was angry against the right things. And he lets Jeremiah here know that he isn't going to do any miracles to deliver Israel from the consequences of their sin. And we live every day of our lives in this world with a a daily tolerance towards sin. We just do. I think the only persons, uh, the only person we don't tolerate is the one who is not tolerant of other persons' sins. I mean, even within the church, there's a mentality going around that, you know what, you just have to be tolerant of everybody. And, you know, if a brother or sister's in sin, you know, you just love them. And no, that's not what the Bible says. That's just not what the Bible says. When you know a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ is doing something, they're living in disobedience toward God or his word. Somehow we think, oh, well, you know, grace means we just love them anyway and just accept them the way they are. That's wrong. Often they erroneously thought that in the Old Testament, and God was angry as a result of it. He was judgmental. And by the time you get to the New Testament, they think somehow this, this God who was angry back here in the Old Testament and judgmental, well, in the New Testament, you know, the old man just kind of mellowed out a little bit, and he's willing to just kind of let everything go under the, all the water under the bridge. And, you know, Jesus died for our sins, and let's just have a gracious time. He doesn't get upset about sin anymore. What they fail to understand is both God's grace and his wrath against sin are revealed in both the Old and the New Testament. His grace doesn't mean that you shrug off somebody else's sin, or your own for that matter. He deals with our sin disciplines us because he loves us. He doesn't want to see us go down that path. He doesn't want to see us continue in that vein that this misrepresents him. In Romans, all the way over Romans chapter 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, here he's talking about the Gentiles being brought in to God's family and everything, but all the way down in verse um, 21, or start in verse 20, he says, that is true, 
they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Some do not become proud, but fear. Verse 21, but if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22, here's here's what I want you to look at. Note, then the kindness and the what? The severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Wow. We don't read those kind of verses enough. We fail to see the, we see all the kindness of God, but we fail to see the, the judgment, the wrath, the severity of God. Or even in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us what? Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the, what's it say? Fear of God. We need to get back to the understanding that God is holy, that God is righteous, and that we need to fear Him as our Creator and as our Savior, as our God. Not that you mean you cower in the corner because you're afraid He'll squash you like a bug, but that idea of fear has the idea of of just holy reverence, of realizing that God is so much greater than you, and yet He has provided for your salvation through Christ. See, we can't pray in faith unless we are obedient to God's difficult commands and unless we appeal to the character of God as He really is. He's all-powerful, He's gracious, but also, please understand, He's settled in His wrath against sin. We need to remember those things, those elements. The third thing here I want you to see this morning, we'll wrap this up, is not only that we have to be obedient to God's difficult commands, or secondly, that we must appeal to God's character, that He's powerful, gracious, and His wrath is real against sin. But thirdly, to pray by faith for God to fulfill His promises, we must understand God's sovereign purpose. We must understand God's sovereign purpose. God's sovereign purpose is to be glorified. That's what his sovereign purpose is. Through both the salvation of his elect and even the just condemnation of the wicked. Look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 5 there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. And to this end, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you turn to Romans, Romans chapter 9. See, God has a plan. He has a purpose not only for those who come to know him, but he has a plan, he has a purpose for those who don't. In verse 21, chapter 9, verse 21, 
it says, actually start in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? Talking about God. But who are you, (laughs) O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Talking about a person who makes clay pots. Has, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor use and another for dishonor, dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. See, it's important to, to realize, beloved, that God's sovereign purpose is both for concerning his salvation and also for those who are being condemned as wicked. In spite of how much it may seem that the, the wicked prosper in our day and age. I don't know about you, but that's one thing that makes me angry. You know, as a believer, you're trying to do the right things, whatever, and you just can't seem to, you know, make the get, get ends to meet kind of a thing. And yet you see your neighbor who's totally living for himself and selfish reasons and doing things that dishonor God. And, and boy, they're just doing very well. <laughs> Sometimes that, that angers you. But in spite of that, we have to remember, while they trample God's people underfoot, God will save those whom Jesus purchased. And he's going to do it from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Revelation 5.9 says that. And then it says he will judge those who are wicked, those who have rejected his son. And that theme runs all the way through Jeremiah uh, 31 through 33. Chapter 31, God really promises to make that... Uh, new covenant with his people and to establish them in the land. Then in chapter uh, 32, he tests Jeremiah's faith by really telling him to, to buy this field and to right in the, the, the face of the Chaldeans' victory. And it's clearly under the judgment of They're clearly under the judgment of Israel's sin. And yet, he says, no, buy this field. Tell them, basically, they're not going to win this battle. This is what I want you to do. And in the face of both the, the terrible enemy that's besieging the wall at the time, and even Israel's great sin, Jeremiah, maybe he gets a little confused, and he begins to wonder, how can God put all this together? Do you ever feel that way? You're in the midst of a trial or a circumstance and you're praying, you're trying to do the right thing and you step back and you're like, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. It just doesn't seem like there's any hope. The hard facts of the present and his promises of the future, they're right there in verse 24 and 25. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He's saying, hey, we know you're, we're, we're, uh, we're God's people. Excuse me, that's, that's Romans. I'm <laughs> in the wrong verse here. Chapter um, 32. Chapter 32, Jeremiah, verse 24. <clears throat> he says, Behold, the, the siege mounds have come up to the city and take it, and because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who we are fighting against. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, we see it. That's the present. That's what's going on. There are hard facts. Sometimes we have things that just, you know, the wheels fall off the cart, even in our own lives sometimes. We don't make the right decisions. And we have a choice to either sit there in that pile of muck and, and just feel sorry for ourselves or say, you know what, I'm going to trust God to get me through this, and I'm going to do the right thing from here on. And that's what he says in verse 25 
Jeremiah 32, 25, he says, Yet you, in other words, in spite of all this disobedience, in spite of all this judgment and sword and famine and pestilence coming against us, he says, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, but go buy this field with the money and get witnesses through the city, even though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. He says, you know what? I know it doesn't make sense. Just do what I told you to do. And trust me to carry out my promises. And yet, even though he's confused, he affirms what God has spoken to him. And it, it seems that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fact. It's something that's going to take place. He says in the end of verse 24 there, and you will, be, you will see it. I believe it. See, knowing that God's sovereign purpose will be fulfilled, I don't know about you, but that definitely helped Jeremiah to trust in God. When you know God is going to carry out his plan for you in spite of yourself sometimes, we can trust the Lord to bring us through hard times, terrible times. Sometimes when you look at the church and you sit back and you realize, wow, you know, just things don't seem to be going right or things, you know, whatever, you know, wish there was more people, wish this, wish that, whatever. You know, you can get discouraged. And yet you got to go back and you got to say, you know what, I hold on to that promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. You just be faithful to do what I've called you to do. And that's what we have to do when we, we get in those kind of times. In John chapter 6, verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing. This is Jesus Christ speaking, but will raise it up on the last day. You know what? In spite of myself, in spite of of my own personality issues, in spite of my own sin issues, in spite of everything, I know that because I've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, one day he will carry out his plan in my life. One day that will happen. It will become reality. I will be in his presence. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is and the work that he's done on my behalf. And so when we understand God's sovereign purpose and we understand God's sovereign power, instead of disparaging over our our current circumstances or plights or trials or tribulations, we can pray by faith that God, you know what, fulfill your promise. And we know that God has purposed to do that in us in spite of of how difficult it may be, the circumstance we find it. I mean, you know what Jeremiah was known as, right? Anybody know? The weeping prophet. You know, tell that to somebody like Joel Olstein. You know, he's just got that permanent smile on his face all the time. Thinks everybody thinks just be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I mean, this guy served God, but he was weeping. I mean, his whole ministry was that way. It was difficult. It was, it was very difficult. He had faithfully preached for years. But no one listened. <laughs> no one. Instead, what happens? He's doing the right thing. He suffers persecution. And then he suffers imprisonment. I mean, he was really on the, the, the edge of witnessing this horrible thing as the Chaldeans took over, would take Jerusalem, burn it, take the temple down to the ground, slaughter many of the people that he knew and the inhabitants there, take most of the other ones back into captivity. Even the few that were left in the land, they wouldn't even listen to Jeremiah. They stubbornly went to Egypt against God's command. You read about that in Jeremiah 42. But see, the God who delivered Israel, into the hands of the Babylonians, also promised Jeremiah that he would gather them out of those lands where he had driven them and bring them back to Jerusalem and make them dwell there in safety. He would be their God and they would be his people. He would never turn away from his covenant to do them good. In Jeremiah 32, verse 37 says, I will gather, I will fulfill my, my promise here. All the way down to, to verse 41. That's going to take place one day. Now, poor Jeremiah never lived <laughs> to see these promises fulfilled. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. 
but because he believed in a sovereign God that would fulfill his, all his promises to his people, Jeremiah could only obey God's difficult commands. He could only trust that God would somehow do what's humanly impossible. I have a little picture frame in my office that says, attempt something so impossible that unless God is in it, it's doomed to failure. See, that's what God calls us to do every day. What? Live a life that's honoring him every day. That's impossible. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that every day. You know, you got issues going on every day. It's like, God, why can't I just get through the day without somehow being drawn down this, this road of sin in some direction, word, thought, deed, whatever it might be. It reminds me, you're not perfect. That's why you need a Savior. That's, that's why you're relying on me. That's why you have to trust in me to live this life. You can't do it. You need to be filled with the Spirit each and every day. There's a theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield He taught at Princeton Seminary when it was a a religious school for 34 years until he died in 1921. And there's a lot of his books that are obviously still in print today. But a lot of people don't realize that in 1876, at the age of 25, Warfield got married. He took his bride, Annie, and uh, they did a honeymoon in Germany. Unfortunately, his wife, Annie, was struck by lightning. And she was permanently paralyzed. Warfield cared for her every day for the next 39 years until he laid her to rest in 1915. And because of her extraordinary needs, I mean, she was completely paralyzed, Warfield seldomly even left his house for more than two hours at a time. I mean, when you stop and you think, how did he endure this trial with patience and joy without growing bitter at God? I mean, sometimes, you know, my wife gets sick and, you know, if it runs past two or three days, you know, my patience wears out. It's like, just get better. 39 years of this. His thoughts on Romans 8.28 may reveal the reason says, the fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need, and can only groan in unformed longings. He is the author in us of these very longings, and he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. See, I don't know where you're at this morning. You may be in what seems a hopeless situation. And I just want to encourage your heart, no matter how bleak, no matter how discouraging your circumstances may be, I want you to remember this dear prophet of God, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who literally bought some property in a war zone and and had a message to preach that was very difficult. It didn't make a lot of sense to him. And yet he did it. He did it by faith. And I pray that we would join him together and lay hold of our all-powerful, our gracious, our holy God, and ask him to fulfill his promise on our behalf. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we, I pray that somehow you would take these words and make them yours and, and communicate your word um, to the hearts of your people. Lord, we thank you for Jeremiah. We thank you for his example. We thank you for even though a very difficult ministry that he had, he was faithful to you at every turn. And did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Father, I pray that we would only be able to emulate that a small degree in our own lives. Lord, we all struggle with sin in a lot of different ways. And Lord, sometimes 
the ones we struggle with, they may not be some flagrant sin that's so obvious. Maybe it's pride in our heart. Maybe it's just independence and unwillingness to yield to you, to give you control. Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts this morning. I pray if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, that, Lord, only as you can do, that you would reveal the Savior to them. Lord, that you are a God that stands against sin, but you also provide a way out of that sin through a sacrifice that was given on our behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who died in our place. He paid the price for our sin. He took upon himself all the sins of those who would ever put their faith or trust in him. And he said it's finished, it's done, it's paid for. If you're here this morning wondering if you can partake of that sacrifice of Christ, if you can somehow reap the benefits of his grace, it just takes your heart yielding to his will. Cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need of a Savior. And He can save you today. Help us as believers as we leave this place not to ever forget that there's a lost and dying world out there in need of a Savior, in need of the message of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that it's not our duty to save people. Only you can do that. But we are called to share the message of the gospel with all those who have yet to hear. And then to share it again and again and again until you work in their hearts and cause them to believe. Pray our lives would be representative of your Son. And Father, when we do fail you and we do fall, Lord, we pray that we would come to you in confession, knowing that your grace is sufficient to meet all our needs. Father, we pray this in the glorious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.